think God and not evil, that you may live so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be you, just as you have said. Take evil and love good and establish justice in the game. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Fools think their, their own way is right, but the wise listen to advice. Fools show their anger at once, but the prudent ignore an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness speaks deceitfully. Rash words are like sword, trust, but tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but the lying tongue lasts only a moment. Deceit is in the mind of those who plan evil, but those who counsel peace have joy. If your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For, for by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May the Lord bless the readings of his word. Well, as we continue our journey through the book of Romans, 
We're at that point in uh, the year of our, of our Bible readings where we're, we're looking at the situation facing the early church. For those of you who don't normally journey with us, our, our plan is kind of through the autumn we look at Israel's story and we have readings from the Hebrew Bible and look at God's revelation to the people of Israel. And then that kind of leads us up to Christmas and we do Christmassy stuff at Christmas. And then between Christmas and Easter, we look at a gospel. And then after Easter, between Easter and the summer, we look at the early church. And, and now we're in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And this, this wonderful passage that Solomon read for us so beautifully just now. And as I was kind of pondering this passage, uh, it, it's a series of, um, what are they, aphorisms, mottos, little, uh, little proverbs. And I wonder if you have a personal motto for your life. You know, one of those phrases or mantras that you find yourself repeating over and over to yourself, despite the fact that you already know it. Winston Churchill's was famously abbreviated to KBO, which I'll leave you to look up for yourself because I don't want to get into trouble on a Sunday morning, or at least not again. Um, but there are lots of other options to choose from. When I was at school, I was frequently told, Woodman, you can't win if you don't play the game which as a rugby-hating student, I swiftly amended to the much more pragmatic and enduring personal mantra of, if you can't win, don't play the game. And then there are the calls to perseverance, such as, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again, which sits nicely alongside uh, don't let the what-sits grind you down, which you'll notice I'm modifying in accordance with my other personal now new motto for Sundays, don't get into trouble on a Sunday morning again. Anyway, so I could go on further with any number of mottos that inspire us to keep putting one foot in front of the other as the saying goes. But there's a downside to all this as well. Some of us here have taken deep into ourselves far more destructive messages, which surface in our psyches with monotonous regularity. You know the ones. I'm not good enough. I'm so useless. They don't like me. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Sometimes the voice in our head does us no favours, dressing up lies as truth and tormenting us from within. Just as a personal aside, it took me a year of psychotherapy to learn how to control some of those voices in my head. Well, one of the most destructive mantras of our society, which permeates all of our lives in one way or another, is the assertion that we have an absolute right to revenge. It's often dressed up as talk of justice. The deep desire to have our wrongs righted lies at the heart of so much of our communal narrative. We live for, we long for, the outworking of what seems like a universal and unquestionable truth, which is that someone, somewhere, must be made to pay.
from the criminal justice system to witch hunts and lynch mobs, the mantra that someone somewhere must be made to pay has become the red bedrock of so much of what we hold dear as a society. And it's against this that I want to draw our attention to Paul's words in that last verse from our reading this morning from his letter to the Roman church. He said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Interestingly, for a passage which doesn't actually mention Jesus, these few verses from Romans chapter 12 are one of the closest places Paul gets to referencing the words of Jesus as we know them from the Gospels. The parallels with the Sermon on the Mount are striking, and this final verse could pretty much stand alone as a one-sentence summary of the life and teaching of Jesus. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. This is radical stuff. And it was every bit as countercultural in the first century as it is in the 21st. Humans are well practiced at trying to overcome evil with more evil. And we are very good at convincing ourselves that contrary to the popular saying, two wrongs do indeed make a right. The ideology of you've hurt me, so you must now pay is very compelling. And it determines everything from our interpersonal relationships to our international politics. Meeting evil with good is perceived as weakness and foolishness. At school, we're told the bullies only understand one language, their own. And so in self-defense, we learn to speak their language well. And then we carry that conviction with us into our adult lives. And so we vote for the nuclear deterrent and for a strong defensive military capability and for proactive strikes on rogue states who rattle their sabers a bit too loudly. And I'm not sure I personally want to necessarily vote against those things. I don't, don't hear me wrong here. You know, what, what are we to do in Ukraine? I think sending military support to the Ukrainians probably is the least worst of the options that we have available to us. So don't hear me wrong. But if we're to listen to Paul on this, he might ask us to think very carefully about our convictions when he says do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good so far as it is possible for you live at peace with all now of course paul isn't speaking into a vacuum here and neither was jesus when he suggested to his disciples that those who are merciful peacemakers are those who are blessed by god the Jewish wisdom tradition had a long history of wrestling with human violence and its productivity or futility, of trying to work out what the appropriate response to the aggression of another ought to be. And Paul, highly educated Pharisee that he was, 
consciously echoes the Jewish wisdom tradition in the way he shapes the passage from Romans that we're looking at this morning. The little miscellany of verses that Solomon read for us from uh, Amos and Proverbs give us an example of the kind of thing Paul would have had in mind here. We hear the precursors to Paul's motto, do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In statements like the, one from, the ones from Amos, seek good and not evil, that you may live, and hate evil and love good. And then from Proverbs, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. Fools show their anger at once, but the prudent ignore an insult. Deceit is in the mind of those who plan evil, but those who counsel peace have joy. These proverbs present us with an ancient call to another way of living, where the narratives of retributive violence are challenged and rejected, where the right for revenge is foregone, and where payment for wrongdoing is released. And I think my challenge for us this morning is deceptively simple, because it is incredibly demanding. My challenge is whether we can commit ourselves as far as we are able, to quote Paul, individually and communally, to living at peace, to living our lives informed by Paul's series of statements, mottos and aphorisms that we find here in Romans 12, to allow the spirit of Christ to bring these words of life to new life, in our lives. So let's spend a few minutes now with Paul's wisdom. And it starts, of course, with love, as it often does with Paul. Verses 9 to 10 let love be genuine, love one another with mutual affection. Paul begins his great call to a new way of human living by grounding himself in the one force on this earth, capable of instigating the kind of transformation that he has in mind. Genuine love, which extends beyond the self to the embrace of the other. And this love is only available through our experience of the Holy Spirit. When we pray, when we submit ourselves in prayer, to God's spirit. We are putting ourselves in tune with God's love as God's love is made known. And just as Jesus paired the love of God with the love of neighbor, so Paul pairs the genuineness of love inspired and enabled by our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. He pairs that with genuine affection for and honor of the other. Love of God must also be love of neighbor. It isn't, you see, and it isn't until we internalize within ourselves, within our spirits, the truth that God loves all of God's children equally. It isn't until we internalize that that we can begin to loosen our grip on the inner conviction that there's something unique or special about our own personal place 
in the heart of the divine. None of us here are loved by God any more than anyone else. None of us are loved by God any less than anyone else because God's love is absolute. But we're not the special case. God loves them. Whoever in your head them is. Them who are marching with Russian uniforms into Ukraine are loved by God. Whoever your them is, the people who teach damaging theology, God still loves them. It's really hard, isn't it? But it isn't until our spirits are convicted of the universality of God's love that the path is opened for the radical reorientation of behavior that Paul sees as the next step. Paul knows that even with genuine love in our hearts, this is not an easy path. So in a biblical precursor to Churchill's famous injunction to keep buggering on, Paul tells his readers to be zealous ardent, patient, and perseverant. Do not give up, Paul says. K-B-O. This is the task we are called to. As my father often says to me, Simon, no one ever said it was going to be easy. Loving others ain't easy. It is a work in progress that demands the best and most that we have to give. Remaining hopeful in the face of suffering, being zealous in serving others, persevering in ardent prayer. These are not easy tasks, but they are what Paul sees as the next step to the Holy Spirit convicting us that God loves them as well as us. And neither is the next topic that Paul addresses straightforward either, because he segues straight from, you know, you've got to be ardent, you've got to persevere, you've got to pray, you've got to love. He goes straight from there into financial generosity. It takes a conscious decision to give money. Are you going to go home and make a donation to Christian Aid? after what you heard this morning. I do hope you are, because the easiest thing in the world would be to not do so, wouldn't it? If these things don't hit our pockets, you know I'm talking to myself here, don't you? If these things don't hit our pockets, such as we are able to do, then it's not taking shape in our lives. Now, you may notice we don't pass a collection plate round here at Bloomsbury. We stopped that with the pandemic and haven't reintroduced it. And, you know, the support that this church needs to keep going, I mean, this place isn't cheap to run, a large amount of that support comes from those who are gathered here. And as one of those who has the privilege of being stipended by this church, I am unendingly grateful for the generosity of the people in this church. And, you know, I think we can all hear, and I, you know, Liz and I give to this church too because we love it and we want it to thrive and succeed. I think we can all hear Paul's, uh, Paul's call to financial generosity towards the saints. 
If we do not have the money to hold collectively together as God's people, we cannot then do with it the good things that we sense God calling us to. So let's not be squeamish about thinking about money. Paul names it right there in the midst of all the spiritual stuff. But let us be generous as we are able in support of the mission of whatever church it is that you have been called to be part of. The flip side of that, of course, I would say is if you are struggling, we have a hardship fund here at the church. Come and see me. We may be able to help you. But of course, it's not just about money. Because Paul pairs money with hospitality. If money is the mechanism, hospitality is the method. And whether it's personally or corporately, our commitment to hospitality is also a spiritual discipline and a sacrificial calling every bit as demanding as the call to ardent prayer or financial giving, which means extending a loving welcome even to those we find difficult. As Paul says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. But Paul then goes even further. Loving the other means loving those who we would perhaps more naturally think of as our enemies. Listen to the way he puts it in verses 14 through 19. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Live peaceably with all. And here we are at the stone, at the entrance to the farm that Dawood Nasser and his brother live in in Palestine. Thank you, Matthew, for referencing this earlier. They have a stone at the entrance to the farm. You can't drive up to their farm anymore because the road has been blocked and they no longer have vehicle access. But you can walk to the farm. And as you get there, they have this stone. And painted on the stone is their family motto. We refuse to be enemies. They have been beaten up. Their olive trees have been destroyed. Their fruit trees have been burned and uprooted. But they refuse to be enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Live peaceably with all. This is where we start to find ourselves, you see, at the most difficult of Paul's challenges in this passage, and it is the call to nonviolence. Sometimes people characterize nonviolence as the easy, passive, or even cowardly response to conflict, but nothing could be further from the truth. Choosing to not bite back is one of the most difficult choices we can make. It is so utterly counterintuitive to all that we think we know about how to live in human society. We can only get to the point of proactive nonviolence once we have fully internalized all that has gone before in Paul's list. We have to follow this passage through ardent prayer, sacrificial giving, hospitality, recognizing God's love for the other, 
Only once we have learned to love the other as we love ourselves, learned to persevere in prayerful service of the other through persecution and opposition, learned to hold lightly to our money, time and status, only then can we be ready to hear Paul's command in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And here I hit my big problem with this passage, and it's this. The problem I have is that the vengeance of God doesn't look much like the vengeance that I want. Leaving room for the wrath of God is intensely problematic because God's wrath is not like my wrath and God is not angry at the same things that attract my personal fury. I want to take my revenge but God takes the liberty of forgiveness. I want to hate those who do evil but God hates the effect that evil has, not only on those to whom it is done, but also on those who do it. The great scandal of God's wrath and vengeance is that they end up looking a lot like forgiveness. But nonetheless, Paul tells his readers, Christians living under persecution at the heart of the Roman Empire in the first century, no strangers to difficulty and violence in their own lives and community, Paul tells them that revenge is not theirs to take. This short passage in one paragraph summons an entirely alternative way of being human before us. And I find it very interesting that this is a passage which is primarily emphasizing orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy. Now, for those of you whose classical Greek is a bit sketchy, orthopraxy is about right action, whereas orthodoxy is about right belief. Right action more than right belief is what we get going on here. And the central message of this passage is not, in the end, believe in Christ. It's far more practical than that. It is simply live like Christ. So as we close in a moment, I want to come back to the observation that I made earlier, that our passage from Romans doesn't actually mention Jesus. I have a kind of personal motto for preaching, which is that a church sermon really ought to mention Jesus, at least somewhere along the line, which is probably why I feel the need to return to this at the end. I think that Jesus, in his life and his teaching, life firmly behind Paul's reinvention of the Jewish wisdom tradition here. There are echoes here of the Sermon on the Mount and the life that Paul is calling his readers to live out is one firmly patterned after the life of Jesus. But he doesn't need to spell this out. Here is a call to living Christianly which is accessible to all including those who don't consider themselves active practicing disciples of Jesus. It's as if the person 
and example of Jesus has opened for Paul a doorway to a better way of being human, which then transcends the cultic and cultural boundaries that give it birth. So here's the thing, and don't take this the wrong way. I don't really care what you believe. I think it's what you do that matters. If you're doing the right stuff, chances are there's some right beliefs somewhere in the background leading you to that. As Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, a good tree will bear good fruit, but a bad tree will bear bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. By your fruit you shall be known. Little Christianity has spent far too long defending what people think and believe about the guy who started it all, to the point where we have all too frequently lost sight of the message he left us, which is that the door is now open to a new and better way of living. As I was talking about last week, the power of sin that fractures our relationship with God has been broken in Christ. The sinful infection that infects the branch and leads to the bearing of bad fruit is removed in Christ. And this is good news for those who hear it because it releases us from those ultimately destructive mantras, mottos, compulsions and convictions that drive us into the sinful patterns of violence and retribution. I think the call here in this letter to the Romans is very clear. It is to live like Jesus. It is to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting Lord, we pray that your spirit will enlighten and guide our congregation, making us understand how we can best serve you in our lives, our church, our city, and our world. Mindful of the manifold challenges lying ahead, may we recognize that our means are limited, but our will is strong. May we rejoice at our accomplishments without being complacent about our record. And may we reckon with our failures without surrendering to pessimism or lapsing into inaction. May we be able to hold fast to what is good. Lord, hear us as we pray for change. Change in ourselves to start with. 
Help us leave our comfort zones and hiding places where we may be tempted to withdraw every time our privileges and shortcomings are laid bare. Help us resist self-righteousness and prejudice, giving us the sympathy, open-mindedness, and perseverance needed to engage with the views and experiences of others, especially when these are at odds with ours. Help us practice the art of listening, for there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies. May we be able to live in harmony with one another and peaceably with all. Lord, hear us as we pray for justice, justice for the victims of violence, oppression, and abuse in the first place. Help us make their voices heard and authorities generally accountable to the people who have been suffering the consequences of misconduct or inaction by those in charge. Help us show how barriers erected all around us long time ago have been shaping the workings of society ever since. And how unfair norms still enshrined into law can easily fuel social unrest. Help us support organizations such as Christian Aid, fighting against poverty and providing relief to the inhabitants of the most neglected regions on this planet. May we be able to extend hospitality to strangers. Lord, hear us as we pray for peace. Peace for those who see no alternative to the logic of brute force, retaliation, and cruelty that so frequently permeate social order to begin with. Help us tackle major social issues through imaginative, half-minded, and effective initiatives. Hence proving that nonviolence should not be confused with indifference or acquiescence to wrongdoing. Help us lay the groundwork for a real, enduring reconciliation through love, compassion, and forgiveness, particularly in those places and relationships where those virtues are in short supply. Help us, whenever conflict arises, not to break bonds of affection, but summon the better angels of our nature. May we be able to overcome evil with good. Almighty and everlasting Lord, hear our prayers.
Amen. And so as we go out from this place of fellowship and peace and reflection, may we persevere in the face of evil done to us and respond with love. May we recognise where others are overcoming our evils with love. May we be known by our love for each other. And may we strive to live at peace with humanity and nature. Amen.